0: All right, so here we go. That's the stuff that we don't always talk about in church, and we're doing that throughout this series, working through 1 Corinthians 7, just kind of going verse by verse, unpacking it. Last week I said it's kind of like getting up on the high dive for the very first time as a kid, and you're thinking, oh, my goodness, and then you jump and you hit the water, and you're like, ah, this wasn't so bad, and you want to get back up and do it again? That's what we're going to do today. We're going to do it again and work in and kind of talk about those things we don't always talk about in church, but we have this kind of rolling around in our minds and the kind of things that we're thinking illustrated in that video uh, with that said, I, I hope you caught last week. The um, way I, I heard it described by one person, so if you missed it, grab it online. The way it described by one person who wasn't here, they said this, Adam, I heard last week was, they paused, big long pregnant pause, spicy. Now, <laughs> I'm not sure fully what that means, but grab it online and maybe, um, I don't know, maybe it was Spicy. But we're in page 68 of the Known Journal, if you have one. If you don't have one, it's a reading plan. It runs along with our series. Gives you a chance to step into the scriptures for yourself. Uh, that is out in the foyer. Grab one on your way out. <clears throat> so here's where we're at. I want to kind of warn you, give a little longer intro to this morning and kind of set this up where we're headed. 2002, I was in, on the campus of Lancaster Bible College approaching graduation. For our final, we had to do what was called a mock ordination and defend a position of theology, which was kind of prepping us for ordination and standing in front of others to do that. We also had to pick um, one air, one social issue, if you will, uh, to defend and interact with and kind of state our position and let, let people kind of grill and drill us. In the room were the, the head of theology, the head of the theology department, the, the biblical professors, the ministry professors. I mean, it's kind of like they're all sitting there. I walk into the room, and one of the, uh, my mentors said, "Adam, pick, pick the thing, pick the thing that you are ultimately going to be faced with, probably and wrestle with more than anything else in ministry." Don't just go for the A. See, and he challenged me. He says, "Salt and education in, in schools." We forget that it's not about getting an A, but it's about preparation for life. So, pick the thing that you're going to have to live and wrestle with most. So, I looked down over the list and I said, "Okay, ultimately, I'm going to have to answer to all these when I go to Ford Nation." But you know, to get ready here, let's pick. There it is: divorce and remarriage. Now, I picked this one because uh, this is one that's been discussed for centuries. I mean, we're talking thousands of years back, all the way to a guy by the name of Moses. Uh, some of you know him. and He's in the early part of our Bible. And he says, okay, he talks about this. He wrestles with it. He interacts with it. Uh, and so he, I said, let's go with this. This has been a hot issue. So I stand up and I present my position. Uh, my position was somewhat a—you kind of would label a conservative on the liberal scale—was lean more conservative. But the school that I was in is a conservative school. Something, and this will be a piece of cake, and yeah, I'm going to be able to wrestle with this and get my A. So I get all done presenting, and right down here, as soon as I'm done, a hand pops up. I look down, and I'm looking in the eyes of a guy by the name of Dr. Steve Nichols. Now, Dr. Nichols is a guy, as I look at him, and to look at his appearance, he looks about half my age, but really he's twice my age. This is his baby face. Dr. Steve Nichols is a guy who, he, this will tell you a little bit about him, he always wears the same thing day in and day out. And the reason he does it is he buys into the thinking that you, you need capital. You need space in your mind to make good decisions. So if I eliminate all the little decisions in life, it leaves room in my brain for the really big things. He was a thinker. He's a brilliant man. He was a published author. And I look down and my heart sinks. And I'm like, is there anyone else? Please, first. No one. He goes, "Ask me my first question. I answer it. I'm feeling good. I'm like, that was a good answer. I got this. Here comes my A. He asks a second question. And I'm like, He's leading me somewhere. And so this somewhere may not be good. He asked a third question. I'm like, oh, he is definitely leading me somewhere. The fourth question, and the trap was set. It was like a lamb being led to slaughter, and it was done. From there on out, it just sparked in the entire room. As soon hands are up all over, and I'm out, yeah, go ahead and go ahead. And I mean, I am being just taken apart. And I'm thinking, oh, I want to crawl under the table and just go home and cry and, you know, eat my sorrows away. And I'm, but I stand there. Take it all. It comes back around to Dr. Nichols, and here's what he says to me. Adam, I would encourage you to live some life. Okay? Thank you. I am young. I can, I can work on that, hopefully, uh, you know. Second thing, Adam, wrestle with 1 Corinthians 7, verses 8 and 9. That's what we're going to be today. So this is the first time since 2002 that I've been able to stand up in front of some people and talk about this. Now, I'm really hoping, I'm really hoping I get my A. So I don't know, maybe you guys can let me know this week if I finally scored my A. Now, as we move there, here's what I want to tell you. I've lived some life. I've lived some life. Um, you've heard my wife, Tanya's, and I story. If you've been a part of Beth and you've caught some of our story. Um, you know, it's not been an easy marriage. We've shared that openly and honestly. Uh, our marriage, the way we say it, the way Tanya and I will say it, is our marriage has been to the brink, and I truly mean the brink. The way we would say it is many divorce for less than we've endured and grown through to be at the place where we're at now. It's not been easy. I remember the very first time I sat down with, to go into counseling years and years ago. You know, I was the reluctant guy, right? Guys, some of you know this. This is kind of the stereotype of counseling. I don't need counseling. She needs counseling. Hey, why don't they go tell me? I know it all anyway, right? So I go into counseling. I sit down with this counselor. And the counselor said something to me very profound. It's captured my heart ever since. And it's really become a part of who I am to this day. Uh, Here's what he said. He said, Adam, you know, what's interesting to me is I listen to you and watch you. You're a driven dude. I see it. You run to the ideal. You're a visionary. You've got this world out here all figured out. And he says, Adam, what I have learned is Christian people, he's talking to me. He's really saying people, but he means you, Adam. Christian people are really, really good with real-world diagnosis. In other words, here's what he means by that. You have the truth of Scripture. This is God's Word, and you study it, and you know it. So you, I can kind of open it up, and yeah, that doesn't line up. That doesn't match up. Yeah, I, I got this down. I can diagnose stuff top of that, you have the living creator God of heaven and earth living inside of you as a Christ father and the person of the Holy Spirit, and he counsels you. But Adam, Christians are good at real world diagnosis, and they're not so good at real world solutions. What do you do when the eggs are scrambled? What do you do when the scriptures say to live that way, but you've messed up and done all this, and this doesn't quite live up to the ideal now? What do you do? This has captured my heart ever since, and it's something I've really become a student of and and really passionate about. I mean, this past... Uh, this past summer in my sabbatical, I read a book called The Righteous Mind, a phenomenal book written by an atheist guy. I don't always agree with him, but he had some really good things to challenge. And let me say to you, those of you that are in this room that maybe lean this direction and or are a bit skeptical or aren't quite sure you're bought in with this whole thing of Jesus and the church, man, this guy has something to say that I think we in the church need to listen to. And I think if we can step into what he's saying and what my counsel, it's essence the same thing. I think we can bring real life where there's a lot of brokenness. And here's what he says. True believers, referring to Christians and religious people, the true believers produce pious fantasies that don't match reality. Have you ever felt like that? The things the church tells you, the way to live, and what's right and what's wrong, you say, well, that doesn't line up with real life. Well, today's passage, we're going to step into one of those areas. And here's what I want to say to you as we get there. Christianity, please hear me. Christianity is not about telling the world the moral way to live. Jesus did not come. His primary purpose for coming was not to make bad people good. His primary purpose for coming was to make dead people alive. And there is a big difference in that. Now, dead people becoming alive will begin to do moral things. But he didn't come. His primary purpose was not to tell the world how to live and condemn them. Matter of fact, rather, he came along. And here's what Jesus actually said. You can't live. Without me, there's a mess. There's weakness. There's brokenness. There's sin, and I'm going to enter your world, and you need me. In fact, the first we looked at to end last week's message, where the Apostle Paul, who's writing in the passage we're going to look at it in a minute, says, "Listen, listen, listen. When I am weak, then He is strong." Do you realize if you want God to work in your life, you've got to step into your weakness because it's only in your weakness and humility in those places where he is going to come alive and do the things that he promises to do. And the reason that is, I believe with all my heart, is he doesn't want people to look into me and say, Adam, you are amazing. Way to go. He wants people to look in and say, wow. Oh, God, look at what you've done. So this morning what we're gonna do is we turn to First Corinthians chapter seven, it's page nine hundred and fifty-three, and the Bible's there in the seats in front of you. We're gonna step into the weak and hard places. We're gonna step into the places where there have been some scrambled eggs, and you can't unscramble scrambled eggs. I mean, you have ever tried to do that? You ever try to get that yolk all back in there? It doesn't work. I mean I've been times where I've made dippy eggs, right? That's what they're called, right? Dippy eggs? What do you call them? Over easy, right? I think dippy eggs. And you crack that thing in the pan and the yolk breaks open. It's like, oh, you just take it and throw it in the trash because I'm like, i can't pull that thing back in now and it's gross. I can't dip my toast in it, right? So this is kind of like we're going to step into some places where the eggs have been scrambled. And what do we do? How do we walk with it? We're not hitting the ideal. So, so how do we do this thing? First Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. I look at two verses, two simple verses this morning, but they're, they're doozies. <laughs> So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. So Paul's saying, hey, listen, stay single. I don't want you to get married. But if they can't control themselves, we saw that a lot last week. That that theme kept popping up. But if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. It's better to marry than to burn with lust. And let me start out by saying this right out of the gates. Please hear me. We're going to say this in some way, shape, or form every single week throughout this series. It's going to get deeper and deeper as we walk in because we're going to get the reasons for it. You can be successfully single. I want to blow that horn as loud as I can. Please hear me. Singleness is beautiful. It is a gift. And a lot of times in the church world, we don't talk like that. And a lot of times in the world around us, we don't talk like that. Our culture does not celebrate singleness. Do you realize that? What we do is we crave the warmth. We burn. We want to be with the warmth of relationship. I mean, this past week, I logged on to Billboard's music charts. Go, dude, go home and try this. I logged on to the Billboard chart and just read the top five songs, the lyrics of the top five songs right now. So you're talking anywhere from Maroon 5's Girl Like You to Post Malone's Better Now to Juice World, and I can't remember, Life Me Can't Remember His Song. But you read the lyrics, four of the five. Do you know what they deal with? Love relationships. Our world craves it. Single people in our world are treated like they got a disease. They go to bed at night aching to be married or to be with someone, or there's got to be missing out on something. I'd say, man, the scriptures endure singleness, and they say it is a good thing. And we'll talk about that in the coming weeks. But you say, but Adam, I burn. I'm on fire. I mean, the fire is raging inside of me. I've got this thing just burning. What do I do? Well, what does Paul say to do? What's he say to do? If you burn, what does he say? Get married. Now, you say, (laughs) come back to where I started my intro. This is where Christianity disconnects from reality. Because you say, no, wait a minute, no, wait a minute, Paul. That's going to fix it. Not only that, but what do I do? Just go pick a wife off the wife tree? I mean, that ain't happening. They just aren't growing around. I just go pick. I want to get married. I can't. I don't know what to do. Let me push in on this. Think critically about this. Does marriage really fix lust? What do you think? What does reality tell you? Remember, we disconnect Christianity and reality a lot. What does reality tell you? Does marriage fix lust? Yes or No. 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 It doesn't. Matter of fact, the thing that's interesting to me, the married people I hang out with, as they get older in marriage, what I hear them talk about is having less sex than the single people I hang out with having sex that they shouldn't be having. More than that, statistically, right now, look around you. Look to your left, look to your right. Go ahead. Say hi. Wave. I don't know. Where is he taking us on this? Kind of feel like me and Dr. Nichols. He's taking me somewhere and it's not good. (laughs) See, look around, here's the deal. If you are sitting near a man, I'm gonna talk to the men. Women, I'll talk to you here in a minute, too. Let's talk with women first. If you're sitting near a woman, start with there. Statistically, 30%, 30% of the women in this room have looked at pornography this week at least one time. It's not just a man issue. I'll say that first. Men. 80% of you, statistically, Now these statistics, I always doubt them. I think it could be higher because everyone lies on these things, right? Do you look at porn? No, I don't look at porn. I mean, right, when the surveyor calls you. So when you go by Google searches and big data versus just surveys, statistics actually bump closer over 90% of men are estimated to look at porn at least once this past week. Now look around the room. If you're married, hold up your hand. Men. Look around the room. Ever hold your hand up. My hand's up. I got the ring. Oh, what's this hand? Sorry. This hand here. See the ring? There it is. Now, put your hands down. Married men struggle with porn and masturbation. Does marriage fix lust? Let me ask again. This next question. Does marriage fix loneliness? Big comprehensive research project, it was just done. Ballparks are Western world here in America. 20% of the population would be diagnosed as chronically lonely, chronic loneliness. Of the 20%, 62.5% of them are, guess what, married. Married. In other words, there are more lonely married people than there are lonely single people. Let me push in biblically. So again, does marriage fix the burn? Paul, the writer here in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, he is writing. Read it this week. He is writing and say, listen, there is a reality that's true of you. If you're a Christ follower, you have God living inside of you. However, you also have this thing called the sin nature that's still here and in you. The the way the scriptures, some of the translations call it your flesh. And Paul writes and says, listen, do not let your flesh control you. He names the flesh. Here's some of the words he used. Lustful pleasure, sexual immorality, right? So he says that's a problem. Quit throwing logs on the fire. Now, how do you fix it? In Galatians chapter 5, does he say, hey, go get married. What is he saying, Galatians 5? Be controlled of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, verse 23 says the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Some of you know it. Love, patience, kindness, all that good stuff. Guess what's on the list? Self-control. Not marriage. Well, if I'm controlled of the Spirit, I'm married, man, and we're good. That's It disconnects from reality. Here's a final one. Paul is telling us to stay single. Now, I've read commentaries and listened to pastors that do all kinds of gymnastics around this one to try and show, well, what he really means could be this. No, let me just tell you, we misread this passage. We think Paul is just touting saying, no, marriage is bad. That's not what he's saying. You know why I know that? Go to Ephesians chapter 5 and read it. He quotes in Ephesians chapter 5, Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, God creates Adam and he creates Eve. And he creates Adam and he's all alone. And he looks at Adam and he says, it is not good that man be, some of you know it. What's it say? Alone. Look, look at the person beside you and say, it's not good to be alone. Right? Now, So he looks at that and he says, okay, so I'm going to create Eve, a helper suitable for him. And then at the end of the passage, he says, for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And it says, and they were naked and felt no shame. It was this beautiful, perfect marriage. In Ephesians 5, Paul quotes that section of Scripture. As a foundation for marriage. And then he says, This marriage is so beautiful. It's so holy. Submit to one another. And then he steps into the role of the wife and the role of the husband. He talks about how that submission looks between each role and how the husband is to lead. And, and there's this respect piece that steps in. And, and then he says, And then he says, for the, for the wife will leave her mother and father and be united and become one flesh. And I'm not just talking, this is a mystery. I'm not just talking about marriage and the beautiful union. I'm talking about the relationship Christ as with you. So Paul elevates marriage to a beautiful place. So he doesn't say marriage is bad. So what does he say here? Let's connect this to reality. I think this is beautiful. We'll go back to verse 7. A little review from last week. Remember we ended. But I wish everyone were single just as I am. And I made this comment last week. And I had some people ask me this week. Now wait a minute. What do you mean by that? I don't think Paul. I think Paul was actually married. So what's he mean here? Well, let's hang on. But I wish everyone was single just as I am, yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. Remember we ended last week and he said that's charisma. The word there for gift is charisma, grace gift. I need a grace gift from God. So whether you're single or whether you're married, you need God to supernaturally gift you to operate successfully in that season. We ended there. Now, so you may say, well, um, Paul, question, student here in the class, put my hand up, Paul. How do I know what gift I have? Great question. Here's how you know. So I say to those who aren't married to the widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. But if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. So in other words, I believe verse 8, what he's doing more than anything else, he is saying he's helping us understand what gift you have. So what grace gift do you have? I think he's dealing with that more than he is how to curb lust. So guess what? <laughs> if you burn, what gift do you have? What gift do you have, marriage or singleness? If you're saying, man, I want to get by the fire. It's warm over here. Oh, boy, do I want to get in the fire. What gift do you have? Come on, help me out, guys. If you burn, what gift do you have? Marriage. If you're like, you know what, most days (laughs) I, I look at my married friends and think, what a bunch of suckers. What gift do you have? Singleness. Now, let's keep reading. There's even more in this beautiful passage. Verse 8, so I say to those who aren't married, in some of your translations, it just simply says, I say to the unmarried. What does he mean? Well, when you go to the people who, I'm not a Greek scholar, I study stuff, th- 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 see, I struggle to even talk English, let alone Greek. When you go to the Greek language and really listen to the scholars who know the language inside and out, they will point out that this word is only used four times in the New Testament. So it becomes a bit tricky to know what does this word mean. So you begin to unpack and say, well, how was the word used in everyday culture in that day and age? So they'll look at outside biblical sources and they'll study the word. And then one of the things they'll do is they'll say, okay, what other words could have he used instead of this word? Does that make sense? To say, what does this word really mean? Well, in this text, he uses another word. Chapter 7, verse 25. We're going to get to this in a few weeks. It says, now about, say it, virgins. And notice how it starts, now. This is the NIV translation. They do the best with this verse. Now. So I'm going to tra- transition. I'm going to move. So I'm talking to the unmarried. And then next week we're going to talk to the married. Next week we're going to start talking to the married who don't want to be married. What do we do with that? That's going to be next week. And now about virgins. What is the difference between a virgin and an unmarried? What is it? Come on, you guys are smart people, right? You Help me out here. What's the difference between a virgin person and an unmarried person? You say, well, they're kind of the same people, aren't they? Not in our culture. What is the difference? Sex. What Paul is saying, he is talking to the unmarried yet sexually experienced. If you're in this position, get married. Get married if you're burning. Some of you say, well, no, a no, minute, Adam, next week he tells you to not get married. He does. And we're going to talk about this next week at length. Because next week he says, well, you know what, I'm really tired of him and I don't know what to He's saying get married next week and come back for next week. Unless you have the opportunity to reconcile a previous marriage. If you can't reconcile a previous marriage and you still burn, get married. Okay, so come back next week and we'll wrestle with that tension. Here is why this is such a big deal, guys. Please hear me. Paul knows the divorce stats. Right now in our Western world... First marriages end in divorce, depending on who you talk to and how they study it and what they're studying. They'll put a number as low as 30%. They'll put a number as high as 50 to 55%. First marriages end in divorce. There was a wedding right here in this room yesterday. That wedding is only about 50% chance of making it. Now, second marriages, whether they've been divorced or whether their first spouse passed away, it doesn't matter. Just put all second marriages in one category. Do you think the number goes above 50% or below 50% success rate? What do you think? Above, right? You guys, yeah, you live life. You interact with people, right? It's 67% of all second marriages end in divorce. Now, you scratch your head with that and think, well, don't we learn best by our mistakes? Isn't that how we learn? Like, okay, mom didn't like him. I should have listened. I really should have paid attention to that. Mom, what do you think of this guy now? Don't we learn best and we, we, we don't? And here's why. Third marriages, by the way. What percentage do you think third marriages make it? Third marriages divorce at a rate of 73%. Now, here's why. Again, I don't want to steal too much thunder from next week, but you cannot un-one what God made one. It can't be done. Even if you're in this room and you're divorced, I promise you, you're carrying a piece of your first spouse. And Paul knows this. This is such a beautiful teaching. It's not condemning you. He's saying this is true of life. This is how marriage was designed to work. It's a union. It's a permanence. It's a oneship. And you don't just tear it apart and move on. There's something in you that carries along with that person. And you say, well, what does that mean? We'll talk about that at length next week. So what Paul is saying, the best option for you, if you're sexually experienced and or have been married in the past, is to stay unmarried. You've got the greatest chance of success there. And then he gets in later in the text and says, and look at the things you can accomplish in that position. Now, verse 9 is, a, <laughs> is an interesting one. But if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. In the, in the Greek language, I'm told, as I, as I listen to the, the guys who know language, this is stated like an imperative. like It's like, get married now kind of thing. Now, why is this such a big deal? 1 Corinthians 6. Remember last week we said Paul takes seven chapters to to finally answer some questions that they had. Remember because we said he lays some groundwork. 1 Corinthians 6, he lays some groundwork. He says this, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. In fact, the very next verse, I don't have it here, but if you read it this week, it says, For do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? So all throughout chapter 6, what he's really saying is sex is not just a physical act that leads to orgasm. Sex is a union. It's this bonding. It's this joining together. And then quite frankly, he really gets deep and he says, and, and it marries and mirrors the relationship that God has with us. When I became a follower of Jesus, I joined together in covenant with him him, and he is inside of me, and I am in him, just like the sexual union and relationship. And quite frankly, what he says is what well, we don't understand, and please hear me, in our Western culture, I don't think we get this. And I'm not talking to the people who are outside of the church. I'm talking to the church of Jesus Christ. I don't think we understand this reality. Somehow, in some way, sexual sin impacts my union with Jesus. Somehow in some way, and I don't think we grasp this. Let me pause right here because the next verse I'm going to read gets even uglier. I am not saying, please hear me, I believe that nothing can separate you from the love of God. I believe with all my heart, you've put your faith and trust in the person of Jesus Christ. It is faith and trust in Jesus Christ, period, that brings you into relationship with your creator and will get you into eternal life. Period, end of story. And I believe you grow by grace through faith. So I'm not here advocating and and, and advancing some kind of law-driven system that if you don't obey, you're out. Yet you've got to wrestle with these texts, especially the next one that's coming. Well, I want to show you these is because sexual sin carries an effect, a consequence, unlike any other sin. So I lie to mom and dad. I cheat on a test. There's a mess with that. It's sin, it separates me from God. It's not cool. But sexual sin has consequences that they do not. Jesus steps into this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 30, he says, You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. And the guys listen, going, Yeah, check. I got that down. Score. I'm obeying the Ten Commandments. I'm a good dude. But Jesus says, I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Uh, Jesus. Back up, Jesus. Um, maybe we need to talk about this Jesus because do you know adultery means I need to get in bed with her and, and Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus says, no. Now he's talking to men. This passage troubles me a little because he doesn't include women, which I find interesting and that's for another day. But he's talking to men. So men, let me talk to you. Have you committed adultery? Look at the standard that Jesus uses. You say, well, no, Adam, I've not committed adultery. I've been faithful to my wife. Have you? Have you checked out that girl at the gym in her tight yoga pants? As you kind of run down that silhouette and think, whoo. What are you doing in your mind on the drive home after work? Flirting with a girl that sits in a cubicle, one over from you. How about the image that you're checking out on the screen or on your phone? How about, I'm going to use a word that doesn't get used in church a lot. I even get. How about masturbation? Jesus says, listen, you step towards those places, you've committed adultery in your heart. Now, why I'm showing you this is look at what Jesus says. So, let me give you a solution, Jesus says. Notice he doesn't say, so go get married. That's not what he says. So, If your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust. So if you're looking at things you shouldn't be looking at, look what he says, gouge it out and throw it away. Well, Jesus, man, it's kind of bloody. I don't know, man, this is kind of getting, uh. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, I would love this morning to really soften this and try and dance around, but I want to let those words literally sit this morning. Look at the next one. And if your hand... Even your strong hand causes you to sin. So this, again, I want to get graphic here. You may be touching someone with this. You may be masturbating with that hand. Cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. In other words, Jesus is saying, you know what, quite frankly, it would be better for you to go to heaven maimed than to hell whole. Now, I'm not reading this to beat you up or cause you to doubt your salvation or think, oh, my goodness, I'm going to hell because I looked at porn this week. Now, there's grace. I wish I had a whole other message to tag with this that delivers that. But this morning, just let it sit and come back to 1 Corinthians 7, 8, and 9. So I say to those who aren't married, in other words, sexually experienced, it is better to stay unmarried because there's a mess. There's a oneness that's been pulled apart. and now it's, it's hard to so stay unmarried. But if you can't control yourself because this is a really big deal, sexual sin is a big deal, I would rather, remember, the eggs are scrambled, I would rather that you go ahead and get married. Can I talk to you guys a minute? Take this seriously. I remember, oh my, do I remember what Dr. Nichols said to me was on the money. Before I was um, a pastor, I'm in school. I'm working um, as a manager at a local establishment. One of my fellow managers was a strong believer in Jesus, a very good-looking girl who was excited to get married. She married a guy that dad loved, that mom loved, that the sisters loved. Everyone loved him. He was a leader in their church. He he spoke well. He lived well. I mean, this guy's solid material. They get married. She starts showing up at work black and blue. Prince Charming was anything but. Now, she makes a decision to get divorced. She lived within the context of a conservative Christian church. That church was not real fun, and they thought they had a way in on her divorce, but she went ahead and got divorced. Now, she's coming to work with me, and we got some time that's elapsed now, and she's a good-looking young girl. And she says to me, hey, Adam, one night after work, I think I'm going to get remarried. I would love, 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 love to go back and erase everything I said to her that night. Can I challenge you? The eggs are scrambled. So, or the idea would be for her not to get married, and we're going to talk about some of those verses next week. But the eggs are scrambled. And what she does and does not do, it could save her life stepping in towards marriage as you engage with single friends and single people. Guys, remember, this stuff isn't ideology and theories. Remember, Christians are really good at real-world diagnosis. Yes, you can look in and say, yeah, that's a mess. Yeah, the scriptures say that shouldn't be. Yeah, the scriptures say, but man, the eggs are scrambled. Step into this broken world. This isn't theory. This isn't ideology. It's their soul. Live with them. Walk with them. Now, I will reaffirm Please, I'm not saying every unmarried, formerly married person should get remarried. Jesus himself says in some instances for you to do that, it would be to commit adultery. And we're going to talk about that next week, and it's going to get messy next week. So we'll get messy next week, but just hang on to your questions and that. But for right now, the eggs are scrambled. Sometimes the best thing to do, because sexual sin is a big deal, let them step in and get married. So here's where I want to end this message. You say, well, Adam, if Paul isn't writing to give us a solution for the lust that burns inside of me, how do I handle that? Or what do I do if I want to get married and I can't seem to get married? Well, here's what I'll say to you. I just want to end with this one. As We're going to land the plane. Our culture often emphasizes finding the right one. You ever hear this? Prince Charming. Right? The right one. Scripture, more often than not, doesn't place the emphasis there. They place the emphasis on you being the right one. Now, yes, there are some passages where there are, um, in follow Abraham's lineage, if you go back into some of the scriptures, some of you know who he is and his one son. They're looking for a specific woman. And, and so, yes, there are instances where you can point out where they're looking for a specific one. But more often than not, Scripture doesn't get into that. It says, be the right one. And when you become to be the right one, What ends up happening is you put your passions in check. You develop a passion for God, and more than anything, you learn to fight fire with fire. This was my sabbatical this past year. This picture up in the right, you guys know what this is? A beautiful foggy morning in Yosemite Valley. That's not fog. You know what that is? That's smoke. Now, right now, this is all over the news. Um, I guess 23 people have died here recently. There, in all the fires in northern California, down around L.A. and Malibu. I mean, it's a mess. When I was out there, it gave me a whole new perspective. We don't see this here in this area. As we drove into Yosemite Valley, this bottom panoramic view is the, is the northern ridge coming into Yosemite. You see the scarred earth from a fire that had burned in years past? But look at the undergrowth. You see the bright green? What I learned in that region, what I learned as I was out there, we walked through the sequoias and the redwoods, and what I kept hearing them say is fire is necessary. It's a fascinating study. Google it this week. It's a fascinating study on on how the sequoias need fire to burn the undergrowth, to heat the pine cone, to drop the seed. I mean, it's just absolutely mind-blowing. They need fire. Now, the other thing, so this one up here in the upper left, is now we're in Yosemite Valley. We're looking back out of Yosemite and see the fire burning. It's burning on this ridge. Since we have come home, this hole, everything in between there is burned. But do you know how they kept it from spreading? How do they do it? They backfire. They burn. They use fire to beat the fire. Guys, spiritually, this is how it works. You have a fire burning inside of you. It could be lust, and it could be sexual. It could be anger. There's something burning in you. It's not all bad. Pay attention to it. Pay attention to what's there. Exodus chapter two. It says many years later, when Moses had grown up, I'm going to talk about Moses here in a minute to show you this illustration. Moses was this guy who was who was raised in Egypt, and he was uh, his family, his lineage were, were slaves, and but the the women are just having all kinds of babies. So the leader of Egypt, Pharaoh, says, "Kill them all! I want all these babies to die. These guys are spreading like like like." It's this, just this, this disease, so kill him. So Moses gets put in a basket. He sails down the rivers. You guys might know the story. And, and Pharaoh, the leader's daughter, adopts him and raises her as his own. So he becomes a prince of Egypt. So many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, so Moses has something inside of him there's something burning in him. He has this passion coming up, right? So what do we do with these passions? After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. Now, fast forward. People find out. They find the body. His own people turn on him. Pharaoh tries to kill him, so he runs. He's out in the run for 40 years. One day. 40 years later, one day, when Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law, he's now married. His father-in-law is a priest in Midian. So one day, while he was tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest in Midian, he led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai. Can I pause right here? Guys, can I tell you, take care of the flock that God has given you. It's one of the things I read in this. you got a wife, tend to your flock. you got a husband, tend to your flock. you got kids, tend to the flock. So he's tending the flock. He goes out into Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't what? Didn't burn up. Now, here's the imagery I saw. Look at this. Here's the imagery I saw. Moses burned up and burned out. He had a fire inside of him, and he took it into his own hands, and he kills a man. And then he buries him in the sand, and he ends up out in the wilderness for 40 years. But within those 40 years, something happens. He is stripped of a lot. And now here, God shows up, and God says, hey, Moses, look here. We can burn and not burn out. It's possible. May I tell you, the desires that burn inside of you, pay attention to them. Pay attention to those desires, those fires that are burning, that anger that is stirred up may not be all bad. The lust and that sexual appetite that is like lit on fire, it's not all bad. Sex is a really good thing. However, put in the wrong places, it will destroy you. So God shows up, says, you can burn and not burn out. Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. Now, this is grace to the core. What does God say to Moses? Moses, I care what you care about. I've always cared what you care about. I see it. That fire that's inside of you, the injustice that you see, I see. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Moses, I see what you see. I saw what you saw. Yes, I'm aware of their suffering, so I've come down to rescue them, and I'm going to use you, and we're not going to burn out this time. Pay attention. Pay attention to the desires that burn within you. Tend to your flock. Understand, that if you're going to beat the desires, it's important to fight fire with fire. Here's I want to end. I don't know about you, but I love fire. I absolutely love fire. The team I meet with to talk about my illustrations, I said, guys, can we get like legit fire on the stage? You know what they said to me? No, Adam. Guys, come on. No, Adam, you've almost burned a church down once. It's a whole other story. We aren't going to take a shot at it a second time. But I love fire. Right now in the fall, you know, it's these crisp evenings. The lights come down like this, meaning the sun has set. The stars begin to come out. And you gather with those that you love around a fire to warm yourself. Now, the thing is, that fire burns within a what? A fire pit. You go home this afternoon, you go home this afternoon and you think, okay, I'm going to cook myself something good. You fire up your stove. You got gas, it's burning, but it's burning within a stove. And you cook yourself a good meal and sit down and watch football and you say, man, it's a good day. Maybe say, okay, it's a little cold to be outside for fire, so, so let's, let's put the logs in our fireplace and let's light it up and let's gather around with those that we love. Man, it's a good day. I've got a fireplace, so I'm going to go over and bump the little knob on my wall and it's going to kick on my furnace. And that furnace has a fire inside of it. But now, wouldn't it be a far different story if you took that fire and you walked out into your living room and said, you know what, we don't have a fireplace. Forget the furnace. I'm going to put my logs right here in the living room. And you crinkle up your newspaper and you put it under there and you light it. What's going to happen to your house? It's going to burn to the ground. Why? Is the problem with the fire? The fire is not the problem. The problem is the fire was outside of its constraints. God looks at us and says, guys, fire... Especially sexual fire belongs within the context of a monogamous male and female marriage. Let it burn there. Let it burn. Now, so he says all throughout this text, he says, listen, guys, you've got to learn to fight fire with fire. We're going to talk about this in the coming weeks, but we're going to intro it this morning by saying, listen, when I do a wedding, here's how I say it. Here's how I say fight fire with fire. When I do a wedding, I'll stand in front of a room like this and look at the bride and the groom and I'll say to him, listen, You guys have got to learn to worship your number one with your number two. In other words, in other words, husband, she is not the answer to your problems. She is not your savior. She is not your all in all. She is not your everything. As much as we sing about it, that's not her. Wife, look at your husband. Nor is he your all in all. The person who will satisfy you, the person who will save you, the person who will make you whole... What is his name? Jesus Christ, who hung on a cross that's behind me 2,000 years ago to say, I love you. I love you and I'm for you. Let's burn together. God says of himself, I am a consuming fire. He burns like he did with Moses in the bush, but does not burn out. Come be with me. I am enough man, we hunger for so many other things that we think will satisfy our soul. And in the end, Jesus says, what does it profit you if you gain it all and lose your very soul? You want to fight the lust that burns in you? You've got to fight fire with fire. Burn with him. Let him be enough. And keep that fire burning within its constraints. Now, I prayed about this message all week I thought man this is some heavy stuff but I think in the heaviness we're ultimately going to set people free I really believe that I believe when we step into these things and wrestle with it ultimately people find freedom so what I am going to do this morning is the team's going to come out and sing a closing song we're going to end a little different this morning I'm going to pray for us and then I'm going to invite you to respond What I mean by respond is to get up out of your seat if something's stirring and just come forward during that final song and come forward and stand here. Come forward and kneel if you need to, kneel by the pews, maybe sit down in these empty seats if you want and just spend some time before God saying, God, you are enough. You're enough. You're all that I need. God, I want to burn with you. Now, so you could be responding, maybe maybe you're responding this morning for the very first time, you're putting your faith and trust in Jesus. Maybe for the, maybe this morning you're saying, no, I'm gonna renew my relationship. Maybe this morning you're gonna come up because you're struggling with lust and it's out of control. Your fire is burning your house down and you're gonna come up this morning to say, no, this morning, I'm gonna put it back in its proper places. And God, I need help to do that. Maybe some of you, uh, just this morning, your marriage is not what you'd like it to be you ache, you ache for a different marriage. Or maybe you're single and you ache to be married and wherever God meets you, wherever your eggs have been scrambled, step in and learn to say, God, your grace is sufficient for me. I'm gonna allow you to burn with me. Let me pray for us. And they're gonna sing. And again, I wanna encourage you to be bold and courageous and step out of your seats and come forward on amen. Just spend some time praying up front. Our elders are going to be here too. Um, And they may come up and some people from our care team, may just come put their hands on you and pray with you if that's okay. But again, let's just spend some time this morning and say, God, you are enough. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. God, thank you for Jesus. God, I appreciate this chapter, 1 Corinthians 7. Man, it gets into some messy stuff, but it's where we live. But thank you that you didn't leave us without guidance and direction. Thank you that you stepped into our mess. Give us life. God, I pray for people in this room right now. I know in a room this size, there are people battling lust. Been looking at porn all week. They've been fighting with their spouse. God, there are people here that that aren't even fighting because they're not talking. There are people here that, that are single, that yearn to be married. There are people here that are like, man, I've been so wounded sexually. I don't think I ever want to step towards it. God, there are people here that are, oh, God, meet us. I ask you, God, right now, in these next five moments, five minutes of time, as this song is sung, just drawing beauty to what Jesus has done for us, that God, we would sense your presence and hear from you. God, more than anything, I just want as the pastor of this church, want to say, forgive me. Oh, I hunger for things that satisfy me in life that are outside of what you say will satisfy me. God, may we repent of those idols and we look to you and you alone. God, we want to be as Moses. We have passions and things that burn inside of us, but man, we want to burn and not burn out as we walk with you, our Savior, our lover, our husband. I mean, we see you in those ways. I mean, we know that you whisper in our ears. For those of us that have put our faith and trust in Jesus, you whisper in our ears, I love you. You're enough wild about you. Now come and experience life and life to the full as we do it my way. Walk with me for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Let's find rest for your soul. God, we ache for rest. Thank you for giving it to us in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.